First Kings 17. The whole theme of the book of First Kings is covenants and character, both the covenants people make with God and don't keep their bad character or good character, and then, of course, God's faithful character and His covenants that He always keeps. But we are currently looking at the northern kingdom. Remember, the kingdom split into north and south, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And as we're looking at that northern kingdom at chapter 17, after several violent leadership changes, chapter 16 left us with the worst king that the north would have, Ahab. And the rest of our time in 1 Kings, until you get to the last chapter, will be spent covering the events that occurred during Ahab's reign. We're going to see a good deal of bad character from Ahab, but the writer's main focus is going to be on God's character, how God loved Ahab, sought to draw Ahab to repentance. And one of God's chief means of seeking to reach Ahab was this prophet, Elijah, who just kind of drops into the scene in chapter 17. So chapter 17, verse 1, and Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. The most famous prophet in the Old Testament is just dropped onto the scene of Ahab's wickedness without any introduction, really, or much of one. It tells us he was the Tishbite who was of the inhabitants of Gilead. We don't know where Tishbe is. Some say it was in the Galilee region. The word Tishbe means stranger or inhabitant. And so because it means stranger, some have said, well, he was just a wandering prophet. He was a a Tishbite, which means he was a wanderer, a wandering prophet who spent most of his time, it says here, of the inhabitants of Gilead. He spent most of his time living on the other side of the Jordan River really without doing anything significant that the Scripture mentions, not until this verse. And Elijah's ministry is interesting, very interesting, and not just because of the miracles that he did. What's fascinating about Elijah is he never once preaches about the golden bulls that Jeroboam set up, never once. And that's been like the main thing that God had sent the prophets to talk to the kings about. He never brings it up, even though that was the reason that God would eventually judge the northern kingdom, which shows us that things had gotten so spiritually bad under Ahab that Elijah's main focus was dealing with the Baal worship that Ahab promoted and the vile things that Ahab did as king. These years of Elijah's ministry were very difficult years for those who faithfully followed the Lord. Even Elijah gets to a point where he loses hope. But I think it's important to remember that God, even in the midst of really difficult times for true believers, even in a time where the man he called to speak into the lives of a people who didn't want to hear it, even then God still wanted to turn hearts back to him, even in a time like that. God, it's fascinating. One of my favorite conversations in the Bible is the one that Elijah has with the Lord when he's down at Mount Sinai. And, you know, Elijah, the Lord asks, Elijah, why are you down here? Well, because I've been persecuted. You know, you know, I'm the only one who's faithful. I'm the only one left, you know. And the Lord's like, hey, Elijah, I've got 700 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet. You're not, you're not the only one left. God always corrected his people during this time when they lost hope or when they hunkered down. And that is never to be the response of a believer to the difficult times around us. Yes, it might cost us our lives. Yes, God might even send us to a safe place for a bit, but God still wants to reach the lost with the truth, and we are His vessels to do so in every time. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 37, we like to quote Romans chapter 8, but this part we don't necessarily put on the fridge. Romans chapter 8, in verses 35 through 37, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We like that. Shall tribulation? Yeah, that's, yeah. Distress? Yeah. Persecution? No, I don't want that. Tribulation, distress is normal. We all go through that. I don't want persecution or famine. I don't want famine. Nakedness? I need clothes. Peril? I don't want danger. Sword? I don't want to die. And then the verse 36, as it is written, 
For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's us. And then the next verse. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are not called to be hunkers or bunkers. We are called to be conquerors. Technically, more than conquerors is actually a word. It's a word in the Greek. It means super conquerors. We are called to, you guys are going, that was horrible. (laughs) We are called to be super conquerors, super conquerors. And so as God sends Elijah, who had probably lived a decently safe life up to this point, into the heart of danger, God's first task for Elijah is not a complicated message. He says to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these three years except according to my word. That'd be like somebody walking up to the President of the United States and saying, the economy is going to be tanked until I say it's not. Be like, somebody arrest that man. Somebody get that man in jail. Somebody execute him. I mean, whatever it might be, someone stop that man. Elijah says, as the Lord God of Israel lives. That's the reality of the existence of God. It's the strongest oath an Israeli can make. This was Elijah's way of saying that everything that he was about to say needed to be taken seriously. I, I get some really weird emails sometimes, not from any of you. Your emails are fine. And I get letters sometimes too, letters from so-called prophets or prophetesses. And they will write out all these things, and it's just crazy stuff. stuff you're like, these sound like the ramblings of an insane person. They're not in- intelligent. And sometimes I get emails much along the same line. And there are times when we say things that sound a little crazy, and even though we're not. And so I imagine there was much scoffing at Elijah's claim here about the weather. I don't take seriously those things. I, I, I think I've told you this before, but I pastored another church previously to here for about 18 years, 17 years, and, and it was a small church for many, many years. And so I would have people come in all the time, I'm like, I'm a prophet, and God's told me, and I said, wait, let me stop you. God's going to give me a great ministry, right? How'd you know? Because you're like the 74th prophet that's come through to tell me that. It's easy when you get an email like that, and you see what seems to be very unintelligible things or crazy things, crazy claims to just dismiss it. And I'm sure that there are probably some in Ahab's court, as Elijah's going, it's not going to rain unless I say so. They're probably like, that guy's full of himself. I imagine there was much scoffing about his claim about the weather. But when Elijah said, listen, as the Lord lives, Elijah was saying, you need to take seriously what I'm saying. As much as God is alive, what I'm saying is true. And I do believe this was also Elijah's way of distinguishing between the Lord and Baal or any other idols. They're not real, but the Lord is, which is why what I'm about to say is going to happen, because He is real and He is all-powerful. As the Lord lives, he says, before whom I stand. It's to whom I present myself. And it was a phrase that you would use back then to indicate you were in service to the king. Elijah very clearly lays out where his loyalties lie. Not with you, Ahab. My loyalties are with the true king of Israel, the Lord. And you know what? That's where Ahab's loyalties should have been too. Like that shouldn't have bothered Ahab. It shouldn't bother people when, you know, if they say to them, listen, you know, you're my boss or whatever, but my first loyalty is to the Lord. Like, it shouldn't bother someone, because that's where their loyalty should be too. But instead, Ahab saw himself as the end-all, be-all, that, that he was where the buck stopped. And because of that, he would find God opposed to him until he bent the knee. Now, to get Ahab and the rest of Israel's attention, God sent Elijah to show Ahab just how out of control he was. Because right now, Israel was experiencing an incredible prosperity economically, as far as nationally, the, uh, militarily, they, they were not in fear of anybody at this point in time. And so Elijah says, you're not going to be in charge of the economy anymore. I'm going to be the one who has a say on Israel's economy now, and I say that there'll be zero precipitation for an unspecified amount of years. 
Now, water is precious in any part of the world. Like, if it stops raining in Florida, we're going to have problems. But water is especially precious in that part of the world. Israel today only averages about 20 inches of rain a year. In contrast, Florida gets between 40 and 60 inches of rain per year, usually on the upper side of that. When you add to this the fact that almost all of Israel's rain comes during the six-month window of their harvest season, no rain means no food. No growth, no food. So this would be a heavy judgment. But it would also be an indictment against Baal. You want to say you serve Baal? All right, well, let's see how Baal does. Because Baal was the god of the storm. He was the god of fertility. And now Elijah would expose him for a phony. You think that he, you can look to him for crops? He can't help you at all because he doesn't exist. Now, this judgment would have been impossible for Elijah to manufacture on his own. He didn't have a weather machine. I did all sorts of weird research on weather control systems. Our world is messed up. Like, I'm like, we, what, we do what to clouds? Like, they've had to write laws to ban people from doing certain things. But Elijah would not be able to manipulate this. So, this would be a miracle. And both the miracle and the horrifying results were designed to get Ahab and Israel's attention. Now, what I find interesting about this message here is there's no unless you repent part or merciful waiting period before it happens. Immediate judgment, end of story. And that's going to make Elijah public enemy number one, not just from Ahab, but any farmer, any person who's looking for food. And so God sends Elijah to go hide somewhere, verse 2. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get you hence, and turn you eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. Get thee hence means get out of Samaria, the, where the king's palace was, where the message was delivered. And he says, go to the brook Cherith, eastward. Uh, Cherith is a wadi about 30 miles east of Samaria on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, to hang out in a wadi is not exactly the best decision. Wadis are dangerous places to live because while they're normally dry, or maybe there's just a brook running through this, the wadi is like a, a canyon with high cliffs, okay? And it's just cut into the mountains. If, you're, when we, if you come to Israel with us when we go next, whenever that'll be, and we drive down as we're going along the Jordan River, you'll see on both sides, you'll see like every 30 seconds, you're going to look over and see a massive canyon, and, and one, that's one of these wadis, and they'll tell you, you don't want, you'll never see anybody out there because you don't want to be caught in one of those wadis when it starts to rain because the high cliffs on either side create dangerous channels for flooding when it rains. If you get caught in one of those during a storm, it can be life-threatening. Now, this is safe for Elijah because there'll be no rain. So it's an ideal place to hide. No one's going to go there because they don't probably believe it's not going to rain. And so Elijah hides there until the brook dried up. Food, food would come a different way. Verse 4 tells us that God commands ravens to feed him there. Let's pause for just a moment. I have a bird. I watch how he eats, how he handles food. Okay, this is not like luxury. It's not, it's, it's uh, he's got pizza every night and it's coming to him perfectly fine. Like, I don't know how far the ravens are flying. I don't know where they get it from. But yeah, I was reading, uh, ravens are omnivores, so they do plants, seeds, bugs, and, and also carrion. So, like, I don't know if, you know, he showed up, like, you know, with a squirrel and <laughs> drops it down there, and you're like, all right, I guess I gotta, <sighs> I gotta wash that thing first. This is not living in luxury here. So, think about it if you're Elijah. You want me to upset the most powerful man in Israel? No problem, Lord. Oh, you want me to alienate myself from every person who doesn't want to do things your way? I trust you, God. You want me to live in a ravine? I know you got me, Lord. You want me to wait every day for the raven version of DoorDash to show up at an address that doesn't exist when I didn't place an order? <laughs> sure, Lord, I'll trust you. I mean, talk about trusting God's word in all things. Can you see why Elijah is so 
highly revered by the Jewish people. God's not asking most of us to live in a ravine or to make it stop raining. But we do have an entire book that lays out what He wants us to do and how we need to trust Him with those things. And so even though what God called Elijah to do is probably not going to be anything close to our experience, what is your mindset? Are you willing to trust the Lord in all things, no matter what? Elijah did some crazy supernatural things and experienced some crazy supernatural things happening to him. But Elijah wasn't like a superman. We were joking about this. Tom came up and he just made sure it all set. And he said him and another elder were talking about, what part of my nature is like Elijah? <laughs> and the other elder said, the sin nature part. That's the truth. Elijah wasn't a superman. We read in James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, that Elijah was a man of like passions. He had just the same type of emotional struggles that you and I do. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, with a nature like we have. So, Elijah went through the same temptations, the same emotional struggles. So if he could decide to trust God with this, surely you and I can trust God with what he tells us to do in his, in his word. Amen? Well, Elijah obeys, verse 5, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. The author points out that Elijah did not deviate at all from God's instructions, which is different than the prophet who was killed by the lion, right? He only partially obeyed God. Elijah, he did everything God said. I think the writer pointing this out is important because Elijah was very likely to be just as much a hero to the exiles in Babylon as he is to the Jewish people today. Like if you talked about Elijah, they'd go, now there was a guy. He was one. He was the best of us. But the writer's making it clear why Elijah was different. It's not enough just to be Jewish like Elijah. They needed to follow the Lord like Elijah did. Someone once said the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Let's be those who don't deviate from the instructions. Now, even though Elijah obeyed God in a very challenging situation, he did experience trials. Things weren't just perfect. In verse 7 it says, And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Trusting God does not exempt you and me from new trials that require us to trust Him even more. Like, for example, you have times the Lord calls you to step out in faith to do something. Doing that faithfully doesn't now give you an exemption for like three years from more trials. Like, we don't get an exempt status. Like, you know, it's not like the devil can come by and go, ah, oh, they obeyed the Lord. They're trusting God. I got to move on to somebody else. So don't give up on trusting God just because things get more difficult. Wait for the Lord's next set of instructions and then trust Him with those too. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get you to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. Now, if the first set of instructions were challenging, these are even more challenging. Zarephath isn't even a city in Israel. It's a city outside the promised land. It's to the north in the kingdom of Sidon between the two coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon. It's in modern-day Lebanon. And he says, I don't just want you to like go there and say something to somebody or preach a message. I want you to go there and dwell, which means settle down. You're going to be there for a while. So God first tells Elijah, go, go talk to the most powerful man in the land and tell him his economy is going to tank until you say it's not. Offend everybody who doesn't want to follow the Lord, doesn't want to repent, and then trust the Lord is going to, you're going to live in a ravine and he's going to feed you with ravens. All right, Lord. But now God tells him to leave Israel, the land that was Elijah's inheritance, and to settle down in the nation that Baal worship came from. This is Jezebel's country. This is not friendly territory. And what I find is interesting is if you have your Bible, if you have certain Bibles, you might see a, a semicolon after God says, arise and get you to 
Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there, colon, or semicolon, which means God paused. God paused. Is it possible that Elijah started wondering, what in the world am I going to do there? How will I eat? Where will I live? It's not like he could do the normal job of a prophet of the Lord in a land that didn't know the Lord. And so I don't know if Elijah started thinking, but as God pauses, finally the Lord says, behold, which means pay attention. Instructions aren't over yet. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. <laughs> you might think, well, that's maybe not as difficult as trusting God to bring ravens. But I would disagree. Ravens do as they're told. All creation does what, what God tells them to do, except people. Seriously. Like sometimes the worst thing you can count on is a person. I, I don't have a, a dog, all right? But if I did, I'd know for a fact when I came home, he'd be happy to see me. He'd be happy to see me. I could always count on that. Even if I wasn't the best master, best owner, he'd still be happy to see me. Ravens do as they're told. People don't. My family's happy to see me too. Wasn't saying they weren't. But as far-fetched as the Raven DoorDash plan might sound, I think it's more likely, <laughs> unlikely to happen that a stranger takes you in, a pagan stranger at that. And yet God speaks of her response as if it's already a done deal. Now, God knows what you and I are going to do, knows what everyone's going to do. He knows the end from the beginning. That does not make our choices meaningless. I think sometimes when we try to logic this out, we sit down and we go, well, if God knows, then it's fated to happen. But the Bible never teaches that. So if that's what my logic deduces, then my logic needs to get thrown out the window because the Bible doesn't teach it. Now, I'm not an expert on time. I, 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 me and my son were talking today about some time travel thing he's been reading about, whatever. I'm not a time expert. I'm not a time travel expert. I don't think it's possible to do that, okay? I think time flows in one direction, not two. And I think if it hasn't happened yet, then it doesn't exist. But somehow, because God is outside of time, He knows. Because His knowledge is limitless, He knows. That doesn't mean that it's fated to happen. The choices are still real. But God just knows. And that's why God's Word can be trusted. He just knows how everything's going to work out. And Elijah decides to trust that. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how God commanded the woman to do this. I don't know if she had a dream or God spoke to her or God sent someone to her. But what we're going to learn is that taking care of Elijah was not an easy decision for her. Look at verse 10. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, fetch me, I pray you, a little water in a vessel so that I might drink. I don't know how Elijah knew she was the one, but God must have told him something because we're going to see in a moment, in a few verses, he has a message for her. He comes to the city at the gate. She's already out there and she's gathering sticks. The King James says it means she's just gathering wood, lumber. And he asks her, fetch me, I pray you, a little water in a vessel or literally in the container, it's speaking of he had his own water bottle or something. He said, hey, can you fill this up for me? It was extremely rare to not have a city around a water source back then because water was crucial. And if you had to travel to get water, it means people didn't want to live there, so those cities didn't tend to get very big. So if you have a large city like this, there's probably one or more water sources very close by. Elijah would not know where that water source was, and to be frank, hospitality was on a different level in the Middle East back then when you compare it with our culture. Like someone comes by, like we had the other night, me and Bev were out somewhere, and a text came through, someone's in the front yard. And, you know, it's like, you know, first as a parent, you're panicking, but then you get more details and you're like, okay, some, someone had an iPhone and they were looking on the ground. Probably dropped something, probably just someone going home, walking the dog, who knows? Either way, it was not anything to panic about. But we don't tend to think, oh, person, how can I help? We just don't think that way. We think, oh, mass murderer sent to kill me. Like we just default to evil. 
So hospitality is a little different in our culture. Back then, it would not be considered rude for you to walk up and go, hey, my water bottle's empty. Could you fill it for me? If you're from that place, it would almost be an insult for you to walk into the town and do it yourself. So they would get offended that you wouldn't let them treat you with hospitality. So Elijah's not being rude. He just says, hey, can you fill this up for me with water a little bit so I can get something to drink? And yet, I think Elijah has something more in mind than just the expected hospitality. I think I think God told him about her situation, and I think Elijah realizes that coming here is not just about him, that she has a need too that the Lord wants to meet. So verse 11, and as she was going to fetch it, so she was fine with helping him out with the water. So as she's going, he called to her and he said, bring me, I pray you, a morsel of bread in your hand. A morsel is not much, it's just a small amount of food. But she's going to have to provide far more than just a morsel for him in the future. So this request of his brings out her challenge. It says, and she said, verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have a cake, but only a handful of meal and a barrel and a little oil and a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. First off, her oath, as the Lord your God lives. So she recognizes Gimmon as an Israeli and probably as a prophet. I don't know, like, if they had prophet name tags, but I mean, like, I just don't know. There was something about a prophet that made them distinguishable because people, when they see one, they immediately recognize it. So I don't know if it was the way they dressed or something about them, but she recognizes this guy's a prophet from Israel. He's, he's not from my place, not my town. And she makes here the strongest oath an Israeli can make. It's possible she was a Gentile believer. Jesus mentions her in Luke 4.26 alongside Naaman, who was another Gentile believer in the Old Testament. Or it's possible she gives Elijah an oath that would mean something to an Israeli. Either way, she's trying to make it clear to him in the strongest way possible, what I'm about to tell you is not exaggeration or lie. I don't even have a cake. Uh, They would make grain back then into circular pieces of bread. They looked like flat cakes. They kind of were like cooked pizza dough, but without the thick part on the outside, nothing on top of it, just bread. She says, "I I don't even have that. She says, all I have is a handful of grain, meal, in a jar, and a little oil in a cruise, a little olive oil in a jug. And I'm out here gathering wood so that I can go and and dress it, prepare it for me and my son, because that's going to be our last meal. We have no more food after that. And then we're going to die. I don't know if her lack of food is caused because the famine affected more than Israel, probably, or if she was just poor. Being a, a widow that was young enough to still have a child that she cared for usually means poverty. I'm not saying that our current culture is easy on a woman who's a single mom. But back then, it was way worse. You could go out and work, but it's not the profession you'd like to have. Whatever the reason, her supplies had run out, and she had lost hope. She had just as much need as Elijah, and now Elijah offers her the same provision that he possessed, and it was the Lord. Verse 13. Verse 13, it says, Elijah said unto her, fear not. Go and do as you have said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for you and your son, for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of grain shall not waste, neither shall the jug of oil uh, fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. First off, he says to her, fear not. Now her words are a bit dramatic. I'm going home to cook a meal, and then we're going to die. Okay, you're not going to die right away, lady. <laughs> you know, like, like, no, it's going to be painful and take a few days. So her words are a little dramatic here. But they stemmed from a very, very real fear. She had no clue how they are going to survive. And death seemed the sure end no matter which direction she looked for her and for her son. He says, fear not. And then he pauses, doesn't say anything else at first. Those words must have seemed absurd to her. Fear not? 
If there's ever reason to be afraid, it's now. And yet he paused to let those words sink in. I think one of the first things that we need to do when we're panicking is to pause. Just push pause. I have to do that. Like, so I don't want to bore you with all the details of my life. But there are times when I feel quite overwhelmed. And in those moments where I feel quite overwhelmed, I have to push the pause button. Now for me, pushing the pause button, it's not just good staying in the pause position. I start playing a different tape. People are like, what is a tape? (laughs) I start thanking the Lord for all the things that are like are in my life that are good. And so for me, hitting that, like when I just start getting overwhelmed the, and the, the thoughts are just boom, 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 what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I don't even know how I'm going to handle this. But just, they just start coming like, I don't know, machine gun, just coming at you, gunning you down. And I just stop. I'm like, okay, we're going to take all those thoughts captive and just empty. And then I start putting in, okay, Lord, thanks for my wife. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for a good marriage. Thank you for my home. Thank you for how you provide for my needs. Thank you, I got food tonight. You know, thank you that I work with an amazing staff here. Thank you for this church. Thank you for my church family. Thank you for my job. Thank you that you provide for my needs there. And I start listening to all the things I'm thankful for, Lord. Thank you have a good relationship with my kids. I mean, all the things. I mean, some of you might say, well, I don't have that, I don't have that. But you've got other things that you can be thankful for. And sometimes that's one of the best things, well, it, it is always the best thing for me to do is to pause, to just stop for a second with all the panic and the feeling of overwhelmness, and, and then to replace it with some truth, to let God's words sink in. I will not leave you or forsake you. I will provide for all, all your needs through my riches and glory. All of the promises in God's word, all of the truths that God says. And then after hearing God's words, then we need to exercise some faith. Elijah gives her God's message. He says to her, listen, don't be afraid. Here's what you need to do. Go, do what you said. Go make that food for you and your son, but make me a little piece first, a little cake. There's barely enough for two people to eat, let alone three, but his, his statement comes because of a promise of the Lord. His, his command to her is, is saying, you need to trust me on this one because God said something to me. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of grain, it will not waste Literally, the word waste means be empty or come to an end. Whatever's in there will not run out. Neither shall the cruise of oil fail. That one means to recede or decrease until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now, does that mean that God would provide to her through some type of natural means, like somebody bringing her food or maybe some crop hope that she has comes in? I don't know. Or was it more like Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes. I lean that way personally because the concept of it not receding and going down, well, it's going to recede when she goes to use some right now. But what he's saying is that it's going to stay the same even though you use some. So that's my personal take. But either way, either one of those possibilities would be an impossibility in her mind. Surely she's already thought of all the natural ways that somehow food could come her way. So the only question now is, will she trust the Lord's word or will she lean on her own understanding? Now, God certainly does not want us leaping off buildings to test how much he loves us, how much he'll provide for us. Nor should we ignore biblical principles in our decision-making process. But when it comes to direct promises in God's word or commands from God's word, I am to trust his word more than what I can see, hear, feel, or comprehend, because the Lord is not limited by the same limitations of my perceptions. And so, the Bible tells us in verse 15, and she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the bale of grain did not waste, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. It's such a simple phrase in verse 15. She went. 
but filled with so much meaning. She trusted God's word and obeyed. And what a crazy juxtaposition from the last few chapters of 1 Kings, where Israel has everything going for them, but they wouldn't give the Lord anything despite years and years of God's prophets calling them to repentance. And yet this woman has nothing going for her, but she gives the Lord everything after just one message. Let me tell you, that's a better place to be, to have nothing but a a promise from God than to have everything and to reject God's Word. And they didn't have a final meal. They had lots of meals. For it says they did eat for many days according to the word of the Lord. God was faithful to do what he promised, and he always will be. Elijah had gone through a lot for speaking the truth, but even in providing for Elijah during his challenges, the Lord sent him to share his word with others. I want you working, Elijah. Elijah was called to be God's representative wherever he went and in everything he went through. He was never off the job because the job wasn't something he did. It was who he was. He was the Lord's representative which is why when something happens to this woman's son that causes her to misunderstand God, Elijah asked God to do an even greater miracle. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass after these things. We know that Elijah wasn't with her for like a decade. He wasn't with her forever. So I don't know how much time went by. But it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with you, O thou man of God? Are you come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? I love the Bible. Like, I'll just be blunt with you. I've read the Book of Mormon, the Koran, pieces of it, not the whole things. But I've read bits and pieces, and you read through it, and it's so, like, not human. It's, it, it reads like someone's writing a story. It's not, it doesn't read like someone living it. When I read the Bible and I read this, I go, that is, I've heard those words. I've thought those words. It is so very human. She says, what have I to do with you, O thou man of God? Is this the result of my association with you? Is this the real reason you came to stay with me? Did you come to me to call my sin to remembrance and kill my son? People respond to tragedy in different ways. Some blame themselves. Some blame others. Some blame God. Some do all the above. And that's the case here. That's the, I mean, everybody is at fault here. I thought you came to rescue us, but that can't be true. If God lets my son die of sickness a few months or a year after he rescued him from starvation, clearly, clearly you didn't come to rescue us. Let's address her disappointment with God first. God spoke to her, and she listened, but now it seems like None of her faith mattered to God. God was cruel instead of compassionate. He was unreasonable instead of fair. How do we answer those feelings or those, those kind of questions? Well, first off, God doesn't owe anyone anything, nothing. If I seek to relate to God in a legal sense, I, I will be disappointed with Him. You will be disappointed with Him if you seek to relate relate to him in a way where I do this and then you have to do this. Because when I relate to God that way, I seek to put him in my debt by the things I'm doing or not doing. And so when difficulty or tragedy hits, I will feel like God's not doing his part, even though he never agreed to have that kind of a relationship with me. If you're relating to God like that right now, you need to stop because that kind of relationship is no different than worshiping an idol. I bring you an offering of food, O idol. Give me a good harvest. It's no different. The world is broken. There will be disappointment and even tragedy. Job, a very godly man. The Bible mentions him alongside Daniel and Joseph as the godliest people who ever lived. And Job said, life is hard and full of trouble. There will be disappointment. There will be tragedy. 
You say, but yes, but can't God stop that from happening to me? Yes, He could. But to be just, He would then have to stop you from all the things you do to cause disappointment and tragedy to others. None of us want that. Don't stop me, Lord. I've got good reasons. Or give me a chance. If God were to relate to us that way, none of us would survive a day. Instead, God wants to relate to us, have a relationship with us based on His mercy and grace, one where I do or don't do because I love Him and I want to please Him, one where He blesses me simply because He loves me, not because I've earned it, and one where He is with me when this world does bring its brokenness, its pain into my life. Well, next, let's address the blame she assigns herself. I don't know what this woman did in her past, but she did. Oh, she did. I mean, it, it, immediately upon her son's problem, she is remembering whatever sins happened in her past, and she believes that God is judging her for it by killing her son. I read that, and I go, that's me. Because my first go-to when something bad happens is, this happened because I did X or because I didn't do Y. Every time, it's the first go-to. If I had just done this, that would have never happened. Or God, you know, I mean, it's like this horrible way of dealing with our sin that we just think that everything bad that happens around us is because I didn't do something or did do something. If you've sinned and you're convicted by it, then confess it and repent. You can't change the past, but you can change where you go in the future. And if your sin was destructive to others, or yourself. Walking around with the weight of guilt is not repentance or even grief over that sin. It is simply selfishness and pride. Now, when I read this, I don't think that's probably the case with this woman. I don't think there were some horrible things she did that she thinks is now coming back to haunt her. It is likely she's just aware of her daily shortcomings the same way you and I are. And so, I tell you tonight, if you're experiencing condemnation right now over a disappointment or a tragedy you've gone through, then let the Lord comfort you in your grief. Beating yourself up is not accomplishing anything of benefit to anyone, and it tends to keep us from the Lord. He wants us to come close in tragedy, not stay away. Now, Elijah didn't want that for this woman. He didn't want her to stay away from the Lord. And I get the impression that he is kind of surprised here too by what happened. And so, he takes the child to the Lord. Look at verse 19. And he said unto her, give me your son. One of the saddest lines in Scripture, he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode, where he had been staying in the house, the room that she gave him, and he laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? I think sometimes we can get the impression that like prophets just like went around going, God's getting you, and God's getting you. Oh, guess what? You too. Oh, and I saw that. Like I think sometimes when we read the prophets and we read about the judgments they, they call down and the, the convicting messages they give that we can kind of get the impression that that was kind of their job. Like they just kind of put on their sin sniffer and then went and hunted for people. Who can I judge today? Whose crops can I ruin today? Whose family can I curse today? I don't think that most of them were used to that. And so Elijah, he comes and he takes this, this kid out of his mom's bosom, the, the moment every parent dreads, and he carries her up to his room that she gave him, puts him in his bed, and he says, God, did you send me here like she's talking about? The word evil here does not mean like evil in, in the sense of wrong, but the word evil here is most often used for disaster, hardship, or even mistreatment. Lord, did you… You sent me to go bring really bad news to Israel, but is that why you sent me here too? I didn't, I didn't think that's why you sent me here. Did you send me here to kill her son? 
Elijah's prayer, again, is very human. I don't think he believes that death is God's plan for this boy. I think he does believe God sent him here to rescue this family as much as for, he sent him here for them to help him. But Elijah's not a robot. We already read about the fact that he was a man of like passions just like you and me. Elijah knows God is good and faithful, but his words reveal a broken and slightly confused heart. I don't think this could be true, Lord. I think we asked the question, why bring him up to your own room? I think, I think Elijah brought him up here as part of his communication with the Lord. It's almost like Elijah's saying, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's almost like Elijah's saying, Lord, this boy who's dead right now and in my bed would have been me if this woman didn't obey you. This could have been me, should have been me, but you took care of me. And so will you take care of this boy like you've taken care of me? Will you reverse what has happened to this boy? And so on the basis of what Elijah believes, even though his emotions are telling him that maybe, maybe the lady's right, on the basis of what he believes, that God sent him here to rescue, he prays for God to bring the child back to life. Verse 21. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's soul come into him again. Now, this is one of those parts of the Bible where you just go, that's weird. Stretched himself, it means he extended his body over the boy. There are a lot of theories on why Elijah did this. But the only direct correlation from Scripture I found is that this word stretched is the same word used to describe when Moses would stretch out his staff to do a miracle. It's the only other time this word's used is not just Moses, but other people would stretch out like a staff or something, stretch out their hand, something like that to do a miracle. God had told Moses that his staff would be the proof to the people of Israel that God had sent him. I think there's a sense where Elijah is the staff now because he's the Lord's representative. And so maybe this action of stretching himself out was his way of, like Moses, stretching out his staff over the Red Sea. It was his way of stepping out in faith to trust that God would do something. Can you imagine if Moses had stretched out his staff over the Red Sea and nothing happened? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You've got, I don't even, I remember the name of the actor. Stand still, yes. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And music is playing in the background. Moses, what's, what's supposed to happen here? We're standing still. I think we often face those same crossroads when God tells us to share a verse with somebody or to pray with somebody or to speak something into their life or share the gospel. Maybe this was Elijah's way of going, Lord, I think this is what you want to do, and here we go. Stretches himself out, almost like an act of faith. Stretches himself out on the boy. What's funny is the first, well, funny, probably nerve-wracking, the first two times he does it, nothing happens. But Elijah didn't give up. He continued to step out in faith, which again, I think is a reminder to us not to get discouraged because, well, it didn't work. I tried that. We should persevere when trusting God for something. And Elijah did, and God responded the third time with a yes, verse 22. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back unto him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. This is the first instance of raising the dead recorded in Scripture, and it's given to a non-Israeli widow whose son was her only hope of provision in ancient society. Like her hope was to hold on until he could get old enough to work. That was her only hope of survival until the Lord showed up. And now the Lord shows up again. And Elijah says, see? The word here, see, is not just look. It means to use your sight in order to make a judgment about a situation. You see, Elijah was concerned that if the child died, he would end up misrepresenting the Lord. That people would think God wasn't interested in knowing people and forgiving people that he was only interested in punishing people. 
This woman had conveyed that thought, and now Elijah says, understand the scenario correctly. I'm not here to bring judgment. I'm here to bring life. And when we really think about it, even the famine was designed to bring life, to call God's people to repentance, to bring them close to God when they were far away. This woman was just another example of that, and her response shows that she finally gets it. Verse 24, and the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God. Do you think? Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I don't know how much she knew about the Lord before Elijah came, but I know that God's law is written on every person's heart. I know that we were created with a sense that God is good and righteous and loving. Elijah had told her God sent him here to help her, and now she makes a confession that the Lord's own people in Israel had refused to make. That the word of the Lord is in your mouth, Elijah. It's the truth. And so this is why Jesus' words have significance about her. He said what he said about her to the people of Nazareth who watched him grow up but refused to believe that their neighbor was the Messiah. I changed your diapers, Jesus. I taught you how to do this. I taught you how to do this. I used to watch you when your mom had to take care of these things. Many Jews back then, they wanted to see the Gentiles burn for all the hardships their nation had endured. Many of them believed that God created the Gentiles just to keep hell hot. And when Jesus said those words, they ran him outside to stone him. I think we must be very careful to not let even the smallest root of this idea enter our hearts, that the people out there, that God hates them. God sends us out into the world to make disciples. We are his representatives to those around us as much as Elijah was back then. We must love them. We must interact with them in such a way that we reflect the Lord accurately. Are you doing that? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, what a great chapter, and we thank you for the life of Elijah and this woman as we get to watch you work. Lord, there's a clear message for us that in the same way that Elijah seriously saw himself as someone who represented you and that things might happen around him that might cause people to not understand you correctly. Lord, we don't want, we don't want any of those things to be us. And so tonight, Lord, we commit to you to be your representatives, to recognize that is our, our calling, that's our place, to represent you wherever we go, and we make a decision to be faithful with that, to love like you, to interact like you, to speak your truth. Please give us boldness, fill us with your spirit that we would love like you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.